I'm Caitlin Wittenberg. And I'm Santosh Sankar. And this week we have the COO of Tennessee Stillhouse and serial entrepreneur Mike Robinson in the building to talk about his life starting and running companies. His take on entrepreneurship is very roll with the punches. Even through losing all his money at one point and dealing with the intense stress of starting and running restaurants, while also trying to maintain a happy home life, he somehow managed to stay laid back and easygoing. He's a great influence on those of us who are less prone to be chill. He's had lots of experiences, learned a lot, and we're really glad to have him on for this week's episode. Speaking of this week's episode, it is brought to you by our newest partner, Ryder. Ryder is the industry leader in truck rental, fleet and supply chain management solutions for businesses worldwide, and now they're part of the Dynamo community. So welcome, Ryder. We are glad to have you on board. All right, enjoy the episode. Thanks for having me. Uh, why don't you tell us your story? So right now you are COO, correct? Yep, COO uh, for Tennessee Stillhouse, or better known as Chattanooga Whiskey. So yes, I've been with them for a little over two years, and um, kind of have a long, uh, storied past of entrepreneurship and starting my own businesses and and stuff like that. But it wasn't definitely wasn't always that way. I, I grew up in the restaurant industry, um, working for my dad, and anybody that knows or who has worked for their father knows that it's definitely not, not that enjoyable. <laughs> and so I uh, grew up in that industry and, and grew to, to really despise the restaurant industry, really? which is pretty funny because I ended up opening restaurants. Um, <laughs> so I went to the medical field um, in college. I played sports um, for a little bit and then decided to go into nursing school. So mm-hmm. uh, completed about a year and a half of nursing school and decided I... Uh, didn't like that either mm-hmm. um, when I started doing my rotations and some of the bureaucracy and other things of that nature um, reared their heads. So I decided to evaluate um, what I was good at, mm-hmm. and it was cooking and working in restaurants. So I went and opened a catering and events company. Did you so. do it kind of begrudgingly? Was it like, ah? Oh. A little bit, yeah. yeah. I was tired of being poor, mostly. Yeah. It does I was suck. like, this sucks. I'm <laughs> tired of I'd, I'd done a lot of uh, pilot concepts, so I, I was on a team with, um, I'd worked with Outback Steakhouse for a number of years that would open up new stores for the company. And so I got really good at opening and launching concepts. And, uh, and I did it locally here. I worked at the terminal and did a little work with them when they first launched for about six months and, uh, North Shore Grill, which is, uh, like a decade ago now, it's not even there anymore, but, um, (laughs) I'd done it, opened some other stores with other, other entrepreneurs and other owners and thought, Hey, I can do this on my own. Um, and uh, saw kind of a, a gap in the, the catering and bar industry, service industry. Um, and so just kind of plugged myself in there and, and a little bit, yeah, I would say I had a little bit of a grudge. It wasn't like my <laughs> ideal thing right. to do, but um, I was good at it. So Yeah, so it wasn't like, a, you wouldn't say it was a choice made out of like passion. Like it was just like, this is what I'm freaking good at. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. This is, this is practical and, and yeah. necessary. I, yeah, it was practical, it was necessary. I... And then a little bit of insanity and lack of foresight. Like, I, I, I love strategy and planning, but I, I wasn't any good at it then. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm just going to do this. And took all my money and threw which wasn't very much. I had about 1200 bucks, and went out and had a pickup truck and a big industrial grill I brought, bought from Sam's for like $399. And so <laughs> I didn't have money for, like, the right permits. I didn't have money for a kitchen, like an official catering kitchen and all the, all the things. And so I basically just 
did this mobile concept where I would come to your event or to your house and cater your party there and like cook on site. And so I'd set up a little tent and prep and do all the work there because I didn't have anywhere else to do it. Yeah. And uh, people loved it and it turned into kind of like a niche. And so it took off from there because um, I was providing this fresh on-site catered meal that people were like, wow. And I yeah, was like, yeah, cool. I just don't have anywhere else to go. What was so, it called? Uh, on the List Catering. Okay. Um, and so we started out doing like organic foods and vending, which was a nightmare because you're at the mercy of like the festival, whether mm-hmm. the show's any good, whether the promoter promotes it, you're at the mercy of the weather and, um, and where they place you within the festival grounds. So that was a disaster. And so I did that twice and lost all my money. Um, <laughs> And my dad tried to buy my company to, to bail me out, essentially, but uh, he wanted too much equity. And so I told him that. <laughs> and uh, I was like, most parents would just help their child out, but not mine. Um, he was. Did you get paid when you worked for him in the restaurant? Very little. So I could, See, I could do everything start to finish um, in, the, in the restaurant, open, close, manage mm-hmm. uh, computers, inventory. And uh, I was making like eight fifty an hour. See, you so. think he would feel like he maybe <laughs> owes you something, but no. Yeah, no, not quite. He has a spreadsheet of, of what I owe him, what he's invested in me. So um, Wow. But no, he's, he's a great dad. He, he taught me a lot. <laughs> yeah. But I was glad he didn't just hand over a check yeah. or some cash. Sure, just a private life lesson. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm going to do the exact same thing to my kids. So. <laughs> so speaking of kids, did you, okay, like a timeline, were you married at the time when this was happening? Did you have kids? Um, not married. I was uh, dating my current wife, Tiffany, mm-hmm. and... Um, we kind of, not against her will, I had kind of been like preaching the story like, I'll be done with nursing, working three days a week, making $50,000 a year, and that just continued not to happen. And mm-hmm. she was like, go get a real job. <laughs> and um, so we didn't have any kids, we weren't married, lived in an apartment, launched the catering company, um, just kind of did everything myself from bookkeeping to sales to cooking, um, kind of a one-man show, which is good if you're going to bootstrap something, but you, something always suffers, and mm-hmm. I hate doing accounting, so accounting suffered first, which is <laughs> you know mm-hmm. pretty bad. Um, so we started the catering company and, and uh, got married shortly after, catered our own wedding, and that was uh, really that's that's great. Cool. It was our, our closest 300 friends. Um, <laughs> it was more of a production than it was a wedding or ceremony. Yeah. It was great. And I, I wouldn't take it take it away is what she wanted. She mm-hmm. planned it. She was a big event planner at the time. And that was actually her career. And um, so she planned it. I catered it. Uh, and it went off without a success. But I was saying my vows. And I was like, crap, I forgot the cherry, <laughs> cherry tomatoes for the salad. <laughs> so it was, I, don't, I don't recommend it to anybody. But yeah. it worked out. So uh, I think it, you, you were saying earlier it was a, you were kind of insane and lacked foresight. Mm-hmm. It becomes kind of a, an advantage, though. I think when you're yeah. an entrepreneur, if you're like a little bit, if you're if you're too to that. risk adverse, or you you yeah. you uh, you have to evaluate everything, measure it, you know, three four times before you cut, mm-hmm. you're probably never going to launch your your business. Mm-hmm. Like you have to have a degree of like I'm just going to jump off this cliff and yeah. we're going to see what happens. Yeah, happens. And and so uh, yeah, I mean that I had a little. I didn't. I wouldn't say necessarily a safety net. Um, but I, I didn't have very much. I was young, so I didn't have that much to lose. It would be very different to How go out. How old were you? I was 22. Okay. So, so yeah. yeah. So I didn't have as much to lose. Now now I have two children, a wife, right. yeah. uh, you know, and a home and, and things to pay for. So it's not as easy to just go and be like, well, I'm, I'm just not going to pay myself this week because I, I ran out of money or I misquoted yeah. an event and didn't didn't make enough money on it. So 
it's a little different um, depending yeah. on where you are in your life, definitely. But to be an entrepreneur, period, I think you have to, you, you're wired just a little bit differently. Uh, so what was next after the catering? Catering. And then we also, out of the catering company, we launched a mobile bar company. So we found a loophole. We're the first people in the state to really exploit it to where um, as a caterer, you're allowed to pull this liquor permit. And since a caterer can work pretty much anywhere, they're providing food, we could now set up this mobile bar anywhere we were providing food. So we started getting hired to do all sorts of, you know, why throw a party and give away booze for free, which is what people had done, or charge this huge ticket price. And and so people aren't going to just put 100 bucks down even if the booze are free. But they'll pay 20 bucks, and then they're like, oh, a cash bar. And they don't think about it. They're going to spend way more than $100. Mm-hmm. And so we got into that market, um, and Chattanooga didn't have a ton of entertainment, so we were involved with a, a event called Banger's Ball, and it was like basically an underground rave party. Mm-hmm. And uh, But we made a killing, a ton of cash. And so we, the bar company and the catering company did really well. We grew up for about two and a half years, I would say. And then um, we got hired by Volkswagen and to do their big company party. That's and uh, I might get in trouble for disclosing some of this information, but whatever. Um, so they hired an events company to produce this uh, employee appreciation party for 7,000 employees, family wow. and friends. And um, I, of course, uh, being the entrepreneur, was like, yeah, I could do that. And, uh, <laughs> and so I put a bid in. It was way too low, of course, but I won the bid. They didn't tell me until about five days, seven days before, officially seven days before the event. And wow. so they call me, and they're like, you got the bid. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I was working on a restaurant concept at the time, but it was going to be something very different than what it ended up ultimately being was Bruhaus, a German-themed German, German uh, themed restaurant. And um, so they hired me. They gave me seven days to do it, and I had to feed 7,000 people in four hours. Um, so I hired everybody I knew, like, if you knew me, you had to work for me. You didn't get a, you didn't get a choice. <laughs> like I was bringing people in from Nashville, Atlanta that I knew that to, to come into work and didn't sleep for about three days, but we pulled it off. And so we, we fed, it was a little over 7,000 people. Anybody that knows Volkswagen, they're very detailed. So it was like, if one of your employees smokes on site, you don't get paid. If you run out of a slice of tomato for the burgers, you don't get paid. No. Everything needs to be fresh and cooked on site and has to be USDA this, this, and this. No. Just yeah. re- just so regimen. And then they're like, and you're going to be in a field with no utilities, no power, no water, no The irony that you ended so. up w- at, with Brewhouse... Yeah, the ultimate concept and having to deal with yeah. your German clients. Oh, gosh, they were so fickle. Um, <laughs> they were great. And at the end of the day, it was a huge success. But I definitely, uh, it's probably a little touchy subject for them, but definitely saw why they lost World War II because they're basically, <laughs> you know, the, the tanks coming off the assembly line, the wrong shade of green, and they're sending mm. it back to be redone. And so it was it was good. It taught me a level of discipline and, and thoroughness that, yeah. that was pretty pretty awesome. But um, there's always a time and place for it. So, (laughs) well, it sounds like you've got like you've got all these ideas. You're you've got this catering company, I guess, mobile bar, and then Mm -hmm. you've got uh, Brujas. Yep. Um, You're not short of ideas, and you seem to have like this endless energy. But what about stress? Like, yeah, are you like a happy person when all this is going on? Are you? Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty good with stress. So, I internalize most of it, which isn't healthy. But I'm pretty good at rolling with the punches, and I think you have to be. If you let things really get to you, you're going to – I mean, it, while all this is happening, you know, we, we had a lot of success. And But when you get success, people 
you know, people want to tear you down. Like, mm-hmm. there's always haters, um, even in the catering world. Like, cater haters. The con, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great one. I just um, the competition. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous how personal some people make it. I'm like, I'm just opening a business here. I'm just I'm like not, a person. I don't. Yeah, and so um, we had articles written about us that were that were basically slander and just all the uh, just really outrageous stuff. Um, and so it, it is tough, and there's a lot of stress that comes with not only managing your own company, your, your own income, your livelihood, but other people's. Like, so you have three or four employees, and a lot of people don't think about this. So, like, it's going to be tough, but I can make it work for my household. And then all of a sudden you have these people that are working for your company, and before you know it, they're basically family. And they're right there with you building it every step of the way, and you want to reward them, um, but at the same time you want to make sure that they're secure and that they have what they need. And so that's a, that's a big thing that a lot of people don't factor into, the level of stress being responsible for another mm-hmm. person, like you're obligated um, to succeed a little bit for them. So it's a lot. I, didn't, uh, I worked every day of the week, seven days a week, 16 hours a day, um, so it was, it was never any, but it, the, it is extremely rewarding. It's not mm-hmm. going and punching a clock, you know, for somebody. So you don't really track what you're working, but it's a lot. What, yeah. what do you do now or what do you wish you had done then to help manage the stress? Is there something you do weekly or daily yeah. now to kind of so your time? Yeah, that work-life balance that you had mentioned, I mean, it's, is that it is crucial. Yeah. It's a thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult thing to pin down, but it is... Uh, you have to you have to put time aside for yourself and your loved ones and your relationships outside because otherwise it'll consume you and in that restaurant or whatever that business is will become your personal life and mm-hmm. sometimes that works out most times it does not and uh, and so you you see these habits start forming where in uh, you know a degree of this happened to me but when I was looking to open up restaurants or take restaurants over I was trying to acquire one or, or just find a space every one that had shut down had the same kind of MO. It was this owner who kind of drifted away from his family and, and his family became his restaurant or mm-hmm. his bar. Mm-hmm. And he started living this secondary life there. He had like a little office where he could sleep. He had like changes of clothes. There was mouthwash there. Then there was booze and energy drinks. Yep. And then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're living in your place of work and there's mm-hmm. no line of demarcation and, uh, and everything gets blurred. And so, finding that balance and drawing that line is, is imperative, even if you lose money or it's going to inhibit your success short term, long term, it's going to be a lot better. And so I definitely struggled with that at first. I mean, me and my wife, uh, we were both extremely ambitious and pursuing our own careers Mm -hmm. and starting a family at the same time and just working nonstop. And my life was turning into my work and I was basically, I wasn't doing any recreation. I I had no hobbies. I grew up playing sports, played sports in college. um, And then all of a sudden I'm not doing any of that and I'm not climbing or getting outdoors. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we hadn't had a kid yet and you know, my hobbies were gone. So my hobby became essentially drinking and not, you know, I wasn't like getting smashed every night, but uh, you know, I'd get done with work and it's like, what am I going to do? I'm going to go hang out on my two favorite Mm -hmm. bars or stops and, you know, see what they're doing, grab a few beers, head home, eat dinner, have a few more beers, go to sleep and get up and do it again. Mm -hmm. And it's just not healthy. Like there, there wasn't any, you know, that was, you know, what I was working towards when I was off my, you know, it was such a short amount of time that I had, I was like, well, I guess I can just go get something to eat and do whatever. And I wasn't focused on my relationship at home. Mm-hmm. And so when she had time off, I was basically recruiting her to come work right. at events and stuff. <laughs> and that was our quality time. 
and that's fine for a little while. Like you have to make sacrifices, but long term, it'll it'll destroy you in the end if yeah. you don't uh, put that time aside. So then yeah. it's probably the trickiest thing to to figure out. Yeah, as an entrepreneur. So, um, so you you know you're learning that you've learned how to kind of work towards balance. What are you? What else are you good at? What makes you good at being an entrepreneur and working in this kind of stressful environment that's always changing? And what are you bad at? Yeah. Um, well, I'm good at everything. Right. So no, Obviously, no that's faults. why we had you. Um, <laughs> I uh, really good at getting along with people, so that that has always helped. At the same time, uh, I'm usually a little too easygoing, so I'd let people or employees like get away with a little too much. Um, so that was something I always had to kind of tug of war with. Um, just getting. Uh, shit done like at the end of the day like you have to be able to execute and there's so many people and you don't realize it until you're kind of in it there's a lot of people that can't execute that just that that will go to meeting after meeting or plan Mm -hmm. and they're brilliant and their ideas are great but they just can't go and pull the trigger or they don't know how or they're just they're too you know something comes up they let things get in the way and you you have to be I'm going to go do that at all costs, and I'm going to get it done. Well, doing something risks failure, whereas planning yeah. something doesn't risk anything. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, you just kind of have to not be afraid yeah. of failure. And you can't be afraid to fail. I mean, I failed the first company. You know, as I mentioned, I lost all my money yeah. and uh, and had to pick up side jobs for a couple months just to, to get back on my feet. And then the the catering company was was week to week. I mean, it was mm. for a while for the first year or so. It was creative accounting, like I was floating checks right and left and just praying that somebody would pay me early. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, I can set terms on my invoices to where you pay me everything. And I was like, wow. Good to know. But um, so I'm, I'm good at just getting things done. Uh, I love a challenge. I love the intensity when things are going wrong or when you have to just figure something out thinking on your feet. Probably bad at organization. So mm-hmm. the I'm a little of a shoot from the hip guy. And so the details, sometimes I push aside. I'm like, those aren't important as long as we get to the big picture. Yeah. And so I've definitely learned a lot more over the last two years of working inside of a startup. And there's, there's people kind of forget too, there's multiple types of entrepreneurs. There's sole proprietors, then there's ones that form companies and that are ahead of that company. And then there's, you know, you can be an entrepreneur within a startup to a degree. It's not necessarily the same, but... Mm-hmm it's afforded me being with a little bit larger company that's a little bit better funded and better organized. It's afforded me the time to get outside that box and learn, you know, what I'm not good at, which Mm -hmm. is is pretty nice, especially coming from where you're responsible for everything and there's no time to learn or to grow or to develop professionally. You talked earlier about you're, you're not organized. You, you're kind of your shortcomings. When you hire, do you look for someone who kind of fills that void or no, I mean, what is your approach to that? Do you think someone needs to be good at everything? Yeah, I definitely compartmentalize the responsibilities as much as possible, but I, I definitely don't write off. I look for somebody that's willing to wear lots of hats. Mm-hmm. I, I can't stand to hire somebody that's like, all I do is is type, or yeah. all I am but is an But what if they're account. really, really good at it? Still no? Not 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 in this comp- this yeah. type of business. It's too small. Startups are too. Right. You have to be able to flow with the team mm-hmm. and kind of roll with the punches. And you got to be able to wear. You got to be able to uh, do more than just one individual role. Now, you know, in a couple of years when we're making millions, we'll need a dedicated accountant or CFO or somebody that solely does mm-hmm. one individual task, and we'll be able to afford it. But until then, we need people that are talented enough to do it. Uh, maybe not necessarily the high level you'd want, but. Um, the biggest thing I look for is, uh, is probably just a little bit of that 
independent mentality and people rag on millennials pretty hard. Um, (laughs) and technically I am one. Um, (laughs) and I love the attitude of like, I can do anything. I should, I can be this, I can be that. So I'll look for that. But if they don't, you have to have a little bit of experience or a little bit of the, Mm -hmm. you know, a few notches on your belt to be able to go and, and execute. So one thing, one more thing I wanted to ask is, um, kind of on the, along the same lines as you seem to, you said you're the people you work with become your family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the people are so important to you. I don't know. How do you approach leadership in that sense? Are you their friend? Is it hard yeah. for you because you do get it, attached? It, it is. It's so the first company, um, they were like brothers and sisters. Like it, they were, there was very little line and there was very little true management happening mm-hmm. because we were peers. Essentially we we're almost on the same playing field even though it was my company at the end of the day, it was my checkbook. It worked out okay then because there was like three of us. Yeah. Um, but in the restaurant industry, I learned really quick that there has to be a separate line and you, you can't, you can be their friend and you can, you can have camaraderie and, and build and build that team and you can do that over drinks or beers, but it is a very fine line. Mm-hmm. And if you're not careful, it'll, it'll definitely come back on you. And so there, you have to be objective and depending on the size of your company, you don't want to keep them too too distant at arm's length. But at the same time, you want to be you, you got to hold them accountable. And if yeah. they're not performing, then you have to be willing to a fire them or reprimand them. And that gets harder and harder the closer and closer they get. Uh, Santosh, I feel like you would have logisticsy questions about the warehousing or distributing or no. Actually, <laughs> now that you mentioned that, okay, um, <laughs> talk about your. The, the COO and you kind of get to see the many different mm-hmm. pieces that come together to help the Stillhouse operate kind of what are the dynamics there like how do you manage the logistics of making sure you get your ingredients you're supplying what yeah. you promise to supply to your yeah. various restaurant partners distributors yeah. so on it's so forth. it's a little tricky so we've only had a, our own production facility for about a year prior to that we were basically a broker so yeah. we it was illegal to distill here, so we had to go out and source whiskey from someone else and have someone else bottle it. So we were a middleman, and uh, those logistics were pretty easy. But one issue uh, is just the supply, like with the whiskey. So back to kind of strategy and logistics is the the brown spirits industry, or bourbon and whiskey and liqueurs, aged spirits industry has exploded since 2007, right yeah. along with wine. The, the business model for whiskey is terrible. So it's basically spend all this money, build this incredibly expensive distillery, spend even more money to produce it all. Um, you don't know if it's really, you know if it's going to be good if you got good people, but if, you know, it's a little bit of a guessing game. Put it in a barrel and put it away for two years and don't just sit on that <laughs> cash. So you're tying all your capital up. Um, for however long you want mm-hmm. that whiskey to age, which you, the older it is, the better it is uh, right. to a degree. And so you want it to be four, eight, ten years old. And so getting to that point is is a little tricky capital-wise. So like managing your inventory. So they went out and we bought all this whiskey at once, but we never replaced it. And then no one had done the math on evaporation. So we lose 5% per barrel per year from evaporation. So we wow. started out with 53 gallons and we're down, you know, the four or five years later to 38 gallons no. of whiskey. Yeah. And so not only are you losing the actual inventory just naturally from the process that you want to improve <laughs> it, um, it's kind of a vicious cycle. Um, you're also, it's just sitting there, that money, it's literally cash in a barrel and you can't sell it. 
Yeah, so don't get in the whiskey business is what you're saying. Yeah, stay, yeah just leave it, leave it all to me. Um, and so it's, it's tough uh, to foresee that, and, and everybody guessed wrong. All the big guys guessed wrong. Yeah. So you have Jim Beam, which owns Knob Creek and a couple other mm-hmm. different lines, and then you have Brown Foreman, which owns Jack Daniels and Woodford. And um, you, There's really only about eight big companies that yeah. own 80% of the, the product on the shelves. And they all guessed wrong. They didn't produce enough whiskey. So you're watching all these whiskeys um, that traditionally were like, say, eight and ten years old, mm-hmm. and that was their standard. And now you, there's no age on the bottle anymore because they didn't mm-hmm. produce enough to sit on. So now they're scrambling. Everybody's ramping up inventory. And so we, we had a little bit of the same problem on a much smaller scale as we bought all the whiskey at once and then never replaced it but depleted it. Yep. And so we ran into this this curve, basically, you know, we're running into like, oh, we're going to run out of whiskey. Like, and we're growing. We went out and got this awesome sales guy, John Lawrence. And, and now we're like, you need to slow down. And telling a sales guy to slow down <laughs> is like, it's like a stake through the heart. And so we're like, we don't have enough whiskey to get to X. And so it's a massive chess game. Logistics is, is a game. But yeah. So. If, uh, if you could have, I guess, one piece of advice for mm-hmm. young founders coming in, what is that one characteristic and quality you think that you've had through it all that's allowed you to succeed and persevere through (laughs) failure that's a tough one um i think just going into it knowing that not succeeding is not an option so you Mm -hmm. go in and if you give yourself an a a b and a c option and c is failing then you're Mm -hmm. you're probably gonna fail and then just understanding the Doing, doing your homework. There's so many people that go into it without doing their homework. Yeah. And they, they jump into a business thinking it's the next greatest idea ever. And mm-hmm. then lo and behold, 20 other people have already done it. Right. Yeah. And, and there's really not a market. I, I do give them an analogy. It's you're basically a base jumper without a parachute. So you're mm-hmm. going to jump regardless or someone's going to push you. Um, you just got to figure out where you're going to land because you're going to hit the ground eventually and, and break a leg maybe. But as long as you can crawl out of there, you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> and on that note, so go out and start a business. Uh. All right, awesome. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks, Thank, Mike. Thank bye. you for having me. All right, bye. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Dynamo Discussions. Follow us on social media at This Is Dynamo. Say hello, we love to chat. And we'll be back next week with another great founder.